Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In 1954, a psychology experiment in Oklahoma seemed like it was getting out of control. The experiment was meant to simulate a children's summer camp, but it was really an academic test. And the kids who were part of it soon began to play their roles a little too well. Well, what they tried to do is to figure out a way to make the kids identify with the groups that they randomly assigned them to, the Rattlers and the Eagles. That's Mark Hetherington, a political scientist at the University of North Carolina. And then they set up a number of different sort of team-building activities, you know. Uh, some of them were within the group, putting together tents and things along those lines. But then they created these conflicts, you know, competitions between the groups, and they, you know, put stakes to them, like, you know, getting the trophy for having done, you know, something the best. So here are all these kids at a place called Robbers Cave State Park in Oklahoma. And the reason that this particular experiment was being done matters, according to Liliana Mason, a professor of government and politics at the University of Maryland. So that was an era in which a lot of researchers were trying to figure out sort of what made groups have conflict. And this was one of a, of a series of experiments. It was sort of one of the earliest ones, trying to figure out what is the essence of intergroup conflict? What does it take to make two groups of people hate each other? Because this was really sort of just after World War II. To get to that essence, the researchers, Muzaffer Sharif and Carolyn Wood Sharif, they didn't want the kids in the experiment to be mean to each other for any obvious or apparent reason. So all the kids chosen were boys. All were white, all were Protestant, all were 11 or 12 years old. And the similarities went even beyond that, says Liliana Mason. And in fact, they were assessed to make sure that they were psychologically similar, that they were similar in terms of their school performance, that they had similar sort of, you know, mental health and home lives. It really was a very thorough vetting of finding, you know, Protestant white boys that were all as similar as possible. Muzaffar Sharif, the social psychologist who was helping to lead the experiment, had run afoul of what was politically acceptable in his native Turkey during the Second World War. He had seen anti-Semitism and discrimination up close, and he wondered, what would it take for people competing for limited resources to dislike each other, even if they had seemingly everything in common? So he let the Rattlers and the Eagles spend some time apart, bonding and establishing their own social norms. And then they got together and things got ugly. And, you know, it didn't take long for, you know, these randomly assigned kids to groups to just come to hate each other. I mean, you know, called each other, you know, terrible names. There were fights. Um, you know, this is actually one of those things that, you know, probably wouldn't get past an institutional review board these days, you know, as things, you know, really deteriorated. And as I understand the legend of the experiment, things uh, escalated to such a point that they had to stop it. Sharif had constructed the experiment so that winning was winning. If you weren't victorious in some of those Rattler-Eagle competitions, you didn't get anything. No consolation prizes. Soon, one team set another team's flag on fire. Then there was vandalism, and then kids started hitting each other. And, you know, keep this in mind. You know, Liliana points up something that's really important. These people were assigned at random, and they were basically the same. But what they did was they got people to think about their group. If everybody had thought about themselves as Oklahomans, then, you know, these two groups of kids would have gotten along just fine. But they encouraged them to think about themselves as rattlers and eagles. And as a result, terrible conflict ensued. And of course, it's a great metaphor for what's going on in the United States these days. 
we think about ourselves as Republicans and Democrats in a way that, at least in our lifetimes, we haven't thought about ourselves in this light before. Hetherington and Mason have both done research on how our culture has changed. Hetherington is a co-author of the book Prius or Pickup, how the answers to four simple questions explain America's great divide. And Mason is the author of Uncivil Agreement, How Politics Became Our Identity, a book that starts with the story of the boys at Robbers Cave State Park. The simplicity of the example, I think, is very elegant. The fact that even if we were all, as Americans, very, very similar people, which we're not, but even if we were, it would be possible for us to find a lot of, you know, see a lot of hatred and animosity between our political teams simply because they're teams. Though we've been divided, Republicans and Democrats, for a long time, if you look at the last 70 or 80 years of data, you'll see something starting to shift in the last couple of decades, a growing animosity and separateness. You could argue that we're living at a time of divisive political figures and that that divisiveness maybe has trickled down. But the evidence seems to tell a different story. In fact, it could be that the real dividers are us, the people who've chosen politicians that reflect our beliefs. Our beliefs that people who aren't like us are stupid, they're un-American, they're not worth talking to or being friends with. And whether you like him or you don't, President Trump seemed, from the very beginning of his campaign, to intuitively understand the robber's cave experiment and the unifying power of being on a competitive team. We will have so much winning if I get elected that you may get bored with winning. Believe me, I agree. You'll never get bored with winning. We never get bored. It's possible, of course, that the reason we want so badly to defeat each other is that we think people on the other side are just plain wrong on concrete issues. Gun laws, foreign relations, trade, whatever. And Liliana Mason says there are lots of polls and studies that scholars do to take the temperature of ordinary Americans on just those issues and to gauge whether, indeed, we're divided on issues of policy. But most of the evidence shows that actually relatively, you know, Americans are relatively moderate on a lot of issue positions. There's not a whole lot of actual policy-based disagreement. In fact, it's it's this sort of partisan attachment that allows Democrats and Republicans to really dislike one another. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they're disagreeing. It, it just, you know, it's possible for for real animosity and conflict to come simply from group identities alone. Mark, you know, what if somebody said, well, I mean, maybe these kids in Oklahoma didn't really have anything that separated them um, in terms of like they were very, very similar kids. Um, but I mean, you know, maybe Republicans are the party of low taxes and Democrats are the party of more social services. So d isn't that I mean, aren't they different because like one hasn't, they, you know, Republicans and Democrats are different. They have ideologies. You know, what divides Americans these days is the key to understanding, you know, why we have the kind of vitriol that we have. You know, we're on these two different teams, but as we've been talking about, there have always been two different teams over the course of the entire 20th century, and we really didn't see the kind of political conflict that we have today. And the big reason for that is that we used to be divided about you know, how big government ought to be, you know, how many social services should government provide. Right. And, you know, let's face it, people are not experts about these types of issues. I mean, if you've ever talked with anybody about 
the particulars of the Affordable Care Act. The particulars, that conversation lasts for about five seconds. But it's the symbols that they're connected to that really get people's hackles up. That's the thing that causes the intensity. And where we see this increase in intensity of this party conflict, you know, has its roots in the 1960s, where instead of being divided about the size of government programs, we started to be divided by race and race being an issue that if you go back to the Civil War and Reconstruction era, boy, that, you know, caused some pretty serious divisions. And then added on to that, we ended up with gender equality. And after that, you know, we ended up with uh, LGBT rights. And after that, you know, these identity differences have broadened and deepened. And again, it's not about the size of government. You know, this is something that people don't have intense feelings about at all. You know, as Liliana points up in her work, Republicans and Democrats aren't even all that different on their opinions about those types of issues. Mm. But the things that are really, really important to people, the things that they feel in their guts as opposed to think about in their heads, that's, you know, race and sexual orientation and morality. Back when, you know, we were growing up, there were no such things as seculars. And now we have a secular versus religious divide in the United States. So this is the stuff of polarization that we have in politics these days. So you talk about the 60s and 70s, and you tell this story um, about uh, the TV host and the former Republican politician Joe Scarborough. And Joe Scarborough says when he was growing up, there was kind of the John Wayne side of politics, like the the you know Western movie, movie star, and the Jane Fonda side of politics. Also, of course, a movie star. Um, and his parents, he says, picked John Wayne. Um, explain what the importance of that sort of symbolism of John Wayne versus Jane Fonda in the 60s. Well, and, and let me piggyback that on to, I think this is a great story, actually. Um, it starts the book. And if we're talking about how big the government is supposed to be, how much should we tax and spend it doesn't matter John Wayne or, you know, Jane Fonda. Neither of them are going to have a position on how much we ought to spend on highways. But when it comes to how tough we ought to be, how we ought to deal with our adversaries, you know, issues about life and death and, you know, all of the social tumult that was going on in the 1960s, a dose of toughness, a dose of John Wayne sounded pretty good to Americans um, at that point. So, you know, one of the things that I think is really a big irony about this particular moment in time right now that we're experiencing is it's so polarized, you know, by party. But if you go back to the 60s, think about what was going on then. You know, you had riots, race riots in the streets. You had Vietnam War protests. You have uh, National Guards people uh, shooting protesters. You, you know, it was craziness. It was awful. And a lot of people look at that period and say, wasn't that polarization? And the answer to that is, well, yeah, it was. And what people were looking for at that point was an antidote to all of this awfulness. You know, what I think is so central to the party divide these days, you know, has its roots right there. How much order and authority are people interested in as it relates to society? You know, if you think polarization and chaos, which we were experiencing in the 60s, you know, riots in the streets, cities on fire, a little more order and authority sounds pretty good. And that's what the Republicans were offering up. So Joe Scarborough's parents, they look at the Richard Nixon style of campaigning and think that sounds a little bit more like John Wayne, George mm -hmm. McGovern and Hubert Humphrey. They sound an awful lot like Jane Fonda. I don't really care how the North Vietnamese are feeling. I don't care very much about 
what the protesters are feeling about being mistreated in the United States. I'm going with uh, Richard Nixon. And of course, there were huge victories, especially for Nixon in 1972. And that's what sets in motion this sort of new style of politics that comes to define America right up to the present day. Um, it used to be this idea of, you know, how big's the government? And that, that issue never, you know, exactly goes away. But, you know, it's really become about who does Donald Trump get compared with, you know, more than any Republican politician? It's Richard Nixon. You know, what he's offering is order and authority over all of these strange changes that are taking place in American society. Um, Liliana, do you agree that the 60s and the 70s were where this kind of new order that we live in now, where that got started. And it just strikes me, too, that as we have this conversation, we talk about like John Wayne versus Jane Fonda. We have completely gotten away from politics, even though that's what we're talking about. Like, I don't know. I I get the idea of who John Wayne is, but like what his tax policy is, I, I don't have a good sense. Or like, is he a free trader? Don't know. Yeah, that's a I think it's a fantastic story because it really points out that what politics is about now and, you know, starting back then was and is we're arguing about who we are rather than what we want our government to do. And when we vote, we're voting for the party that looks like us and seems more culturally and socially like us. And it's very similar to the idea of thinking about it as sports. So, right, if, you, if you're watching the Super Bowl, much like, you know, as you're watching Returns on Election Night, you know, you have friends over, you get some popcorn, you know, everyone's watching the TV, and then your team wins, and you get super excited, and you're, everybody's, you know, cheering, or you lose, and you're crying, actually, you know, really, really upset. Right. But the difference between the Super Bowl and Election Night is that the day after the election, the government has to function and actually take actions, right? The government has to do policy. Right. And we don't expect our, our Super Bowl winners to do anything for us after they've won, right? And so I think that's one of the things that has made this change from, you know, what do we want our government to do to what do we want our government to look like? Do we want to feel like our government represents us socially? That shift really removes policy almost entirely from the conversation, and so we end up having this, you know, we're so invested in the victory of our team because they're like us that we sort of put policy to the side and actually incentivizes us to sort of not think as much about policy because we don't really care what the government does as long as they give us that feeling that we're winning right. and reinforce the idea that the other side just looks completely different from what we feel that we are. So to underscore that, um, in the week before the 2016 election, um, Republicans were asked, uh, do you think the economy is getting better? 16 percent said yes. So that's not that impressive. Um, the week after the election, so the week before, the week after, we're talking like seven, 10 days later, 49 percent of Republicans thought, yep, the economy is getting better. Now, my guess just offhand is that the economy did not change that much in a week. Um but it's like what you're saying, like, if you are a Red Sox fan, the next day you're feeling so much better. It's not like, you know, the next day after a win. It's not like the world changed, but it's like you won. Yeah. One of the earliest books about American political behavior called The American Voter, which came out in 1960, actually talked about partisanship as a perceptual screen. So it's like a thing that you look through and it changes the way that you see the world. And that has only become 
a more and more sort of, you know, thick and smoky screen as we've polarized more is that when we look at the world, we have plenty of evidence that people just interpret information in a way that makes their party seem better and the other party seem worse. The same piece of information can be interpreted completely differently depending on partisanship. And and in fact, our brains are hardwired for us to try to find information that makes our team look good Mm -hmm. and to try to, to argue with things that make the other team look good, to find ways to disprove information that makes the other side look good. And so, you know, we really are sort of walking through the world in this in this completely biased way without really understanding that that's happening or that or that that's what we're doing. Liliana Mason is the author of Uncivil Agreement, How Politics Became Our Identity. And Mark Hetherington is a co-author of Prius or Pickup, How the Answers to Four Simple Questions Explain America's Great Divide. I'm going to be back with both of them in just a minute to look at how these biases have divided us into two different cultures with favorite TV shows, favorite cars, favorite places to live. You can find this whole conversation and all of our segments every week by subscribing to Innovation Hub on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. From WGBH Radio and PRI, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, but this is John Wayne. In boot camp, you learned out of a book. Out here, you got to remember the book and learn a thousand things that have never been printed, probably never will be. You got to learn right and you got to learn fast. And any man that doesn't want to cooperate, I'll make him wish he hadn't been born. That's the 1949 movie Sands of Iwo Jima, in which Wayne plays a super tough Marine. Before I'm through with you, you're going to move like one man and think like one man. If you don't, you'll be dead. By the time he starred in that movie, Wayne was already considered the epitome of a tough guy. He had been in the movies for decades, and he would continue to be in films for decades to come. Meanwhile, Wayne, along with the country around him, was undergoing a political shift. He'd voted for Franklin Roosevelt for president, but by the 1960s, he was a staunch Republican. In the early 70s, he supported the Vietnam War. Around the same time, another movie star chose a different path politically. At a time when there are 400,000 people in prison in South Vietnam for speaking out for peace, independence, and democracy in South Vietnam, I think the least we can do is to close down our schools and universities. Jane Fonda had been famous, in some sense, since she was born. She was the daughter of Hollywood legend Henry Fonda, and then she herself rose to prominence as an actress. But during the Vietnam War, she became perhaps even more famous as an activist. But I think that rather than getting all stirred up about candidates and their personalities, we should keep the issues foremost. And the foremost issue is the war, because around the war is racism, is sexism, is imperialism, is everything that it is, is destroying our lives and alienating us and making our culture and our society inhuman. We must keep the war in the foreground. In the early 1990s, when a young man named Joe Scarborough was campaigning for Congress in a conservative part of Florida, those Hollywood figures still loomed large. 
You look at the years between 1968 and 1974, and it really was a crack in time. I remember campaigning, uh, my first week campaigning, I've told this story before, I came home, I knocked on doors, uh, my, actually my first day, and my parents said, so what did you find out out there? I said, I found out everybody's still living in 1968, and you're either John Wayne or Jane Fonda. You're not, and, and, and the two never meet. Liliana Mason from the University of Maryland and Mark Hetherington from the University of North Carolina have both written about how this divide has changed politics in recent decades and changed us. Hetherington says we've become so balkanized into our Wayne and Fonda camps that we're often living in completely different cultures. We prefer different foods, choose different cars, have different parenting priorities, and live in different sorts of neighborhoods. During the 2016 election, Americans were asked which of these two statements more reflected how they felt. See what you think. Here's the first statement. Our lives are threatened by terrorists, criminals, and illegal immigrants, and our priority should be to protect ourselves. Okay, now here's the second statement. It's a big, beautiful world, mostly full of good people, and we must find a way to embrace each other and not allow ourselves to become isolated. If you agree more with the first statement that our lives are threatened, chances are close to 80 percent you voted for Donald Trump. If you agree more with the second statement, it's a big, beautiful world, chances are close to 80 percent you voted for Hillary Clinton. And there are other amazing predictors of how you voted that also have to do with culture. Do you watch the show Family Guy? A great predictor of having voted for Clinton. Do you watch Duck Dynasty? an amazing predictor of having voted for Trump. And the implications of those divisions couldn't be more profound. So the thing that's interesting about this new divide, you know, and it starts with race and then we end up with gender and sexual orientation and our the stance that we take towards our adversaries. So this sort of Jane Fonda versus John Wayne type of divide it's not just about politics. You know, you think about, you know, these are different characters in so many different ways. And those ways seem to be organized around this orientation. This seems to be the thing that orients people towards one side of the Jane Fonda, John Wayne divide. And that is how dangerous do you think the world is? You know, if you think the world is a dangerous place, then you think, you know, a little bit more John Wayne, a little bit more toughness, a little bit more tradition, a little bit more... Um, maybe looking backwards about when America was great. That's the thing that we, you know, need to do. Um, if you think the world is a safe place, you think to yourself, well, you know, the past is fine, but we can make it better. You know, the past was full of discrimination and other things that maybe we wouldn't be, you know, so proud of. And, you know, since it's not such a perilous uh, place, we can try out different things. You know, we can get behind uh, civil rights. We can get behind uh, gender equality. We can get behind LGBT rights and, and so forth. But think about that. If you think the world is a dangerous place, you have all sorts of different habits of mind in all likelihood. You know, one of them is how open to new experiences you are. If you think the world is safe, new experiences seem like a pretty good idea. If you think like the world is dangerous, then you want to, you know, limit those new things. And that, you know, ought to map onto all sorts of decisions that people make in their lives. So, you know, where to live? How about the city versus the suburbs? Well, you think about this great rural urban divide that we have in American politics. It's very much about these two differing worldviews that people have. 
people who are not as open to experience think the world is a more dangerous place, they're going to like the suburbs and its predictability and its safety and all of those things. Whereas, you know, people who think the world is safer, they like the interesting new things that are in the city. They're going to want to try out the new Thai restaurant or maybe even the Ethiopian place. They're certainly not going to want to go to a chain place. You know, the cars that they drive, the book's title, Prius or Pickup, is uh, drawn from this regularity that you see that Republicans, you know, again, who value safety and security more than Democrats do, they tend to drive trucks and SUVs, whereas Democrats tend to drive, you know, smaller foreign cars as opposed to domestic ones. All of these things, you know, I think are organized by the same worldview. But here's the thing that's important about it. The thing that's really important is politics, you know, a little bit more government, a little bit less government, like that was the conversation in the 1930s, 40s, 50s and 60s. You know, people don't really know. They don't really care, um, you know, about those things. But whether the world is safe or whether it's dangerous, I mean, you know, that's primal. Hmm. And the way that we've gotten sorted out where you have Democrats living among Democrats, they don't have contact in the same way that with Republicans that they did back in another generation. So we develop these caricatures of the other side. They're just not like us. And not only are they not like us in politics, they don't drive the right car. They don't drink the right coffee. They don't drink the right beer. They don't eat the right food. You know, it's like a bad relationship. You know, we just don't have anything in common with each other anymore. And I think this is the fuel for the polarization that we're experiencing at this particular moment. Hmm. Um, Liliana, we've heard a lot in the past I don't know, 20, 30 years maybe about how people have become more disconnected from like religious groups or from groups like the Rotary Club or the Elks, or, you know, things that used to maybe organize communities more. Um, but you know that as that's happened, people have not sort of forgotten about the power of group identity and that in some ways, as those other groups have faded away, they have turned more to political groups? Like, how has that manifested? I think it's a really important part of the story because as we sort of fall apart in terms of our old institutions, the places that we used to gather, the places where people might meet, you know, an outgroup partisan, for instance, you know, a partisan from the other side, those are disappearing. And what we have instead is this really personalized information environment where we can choose to hear, you know, only from people on our own side in terms of reading news or watching news on television or seeing it on the Internet. You know, these dynamics that Mark was describing, they really push us in the direction of avoiding the other side and the people on the other side. And so as we do this, one of the things that happens is that our ability to think about the other side as even sort of human is diminished. Because the less contact we have with outsiders, the more we can sort of dehumanize them and think of them as other. It's sort of this, you know, vicious cycle where the more that we dehumanize them, then the less we want to have contact with them. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there was a study during the Korean War, which is when the, the armed forces desegregated their battalions. And they did it in almost a, a random order, just sort of where they needed more soldiers and so there were social scientists that watched this and paid attention to it and surveyed the soldiers on their racial attitudes. And what they found was that in the desegregated battalions, the white soldiers were much more racially tolerant. And this reflects something called contact theory, which basically means if you spend more time with somebody, at the very least, you're going to be able to think of them as a human being. 
And so that opportunity has been diminishing. And even geographically, as Mark explained, geographically, we're living in different places, so we don't even accidentally come into contact. I gave a talk at a college, and, and during the question and answer session, uh, a student raised their hand and said, I'm, I'm the leader of uh, the conservative student group, and we regularly meet up with the liberal student group in order to have political discussions to try to you know, make our politics more civil. Do you have any recommendations for what we could do to maybe help us, you know, move past these what seem to be unsolvable differences between the two groups? And my advice to them was stop talking about politics. Go out and build something together, right? Build a house, do a project, work together on something that's not political towards a common goal. And then maybe you can talk about politics after you spend like two weeks working on, you know, building a house. Because it's what we end up doing is when we when we think about politics as this ever present divider between Americans, then we can't really talk about politics in a rational or thoughtful way. And the other thing that I'll say is that part of the reason that politics could take over what we used to have as sort of institutions that would bring us together, politics, much like sports, again, we have regular competitions. As our parties grow further and further apart culturally and socially, we get to watch every two years, if not more often, we get to watch our two sides have a battle. And the more competition there is between two groups, the more animosity there's going to be between those two groups. And so it's a very easy thing for us to just, you know, every two years sit down and eat our popcorn and watch and think about, are we winning or are we losing? And does that make me feel good or does that make me feel bad? And it becomes easier and easier to just think of it as, you know, a battle of good versus evil when you're not working together with members of the other side to do something that's more important than watching, uh, you know, election returns on election night. Do we have data on how Democrats think about Republicans and how Republicans think about Democrats and how that's changed over time? Yes. Um, and in fact, some models that we've used for a long time, one of them is called a feeling thermometer. So it's just like, how warm do you feel towards this group? And we'll ask it about a lot of different groups, including Democrats and Republicans. And so we've seen that the difference between people's ratings of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party has increased substantially. Even since the 1980s, it has been increasing. And then another way to look at it is to ask people, basically, how comfortable are you spending social time with members of the other side? So, you know, would it be okay for a member of the other party to be your next door neighbor? Uh, would you be close friends with a member of the other party? Would you be casual acquaintances? And how would you feel if a member of your family married somebody from the other party? And that we've also seen has, particularly the marriage question, has gotten a lot worse over time since the 1960s even. It's gotten substantially more polarized. And I have some new research I've been working on, even asking people about, are you capable of, de of sort of dehumanizing the other side, right? Do you agree with statements like, the other party aren't just wrong, they behave like animals, those types of, of things. And we're finding, you know, not high, but between... 10 and, you know, 10 and 20 percent generally of people agreeing with these sort of dehumanizing questions and also even moving further into some levels of, you know, would you approve of your party using violence to achieve their political goals? Still very low numbers, but, you know, up to 10 percent of Republicans and Democrats responding that that's true. So we're sort of trying to push the boundaries of how far we can measure this. Um, and and it doesn't seem like we're finding a, an endpoint yet. 
Hmm. Mark, what do you make of that? The fact that people are like, I don't really want to live near this person. I sure as heck wouldn't want somebody in my family to marry somebody who is a whatever, you know, a Republican or a Democrat if, if we're the other side. Like what? What do you make of that, and where does that? What does that tell you about where we are? Well, I think this is the maybe the most troubling part of the situation right now. You know, politics is no longer just politics. The the studies that um, Liliana was talking about show that about you know four or five percent of people, Republicans and Democrats, in 1960, uh, would have been unhappy with their child marrying somebody from the other party. You know, now 30 or 40 percent, you know, oh, of people who say So it's that. gone from, what, what did you say, like 4 or 5 percent? Yeah, 4 or 5 percent into 30. the, you know, depending upon the, the surveys, and you know, into the 30s. But, it, like, things have really changed. It's not like our perception that things are, have changed. Things have really changed. Yeah, and, and I think the key thing here is it's really intense hatred. You know, Liliana made reference to these feeling thermometers People not even 20 years ago, you know, would rate the other party around the neutral point of the scale. Now people rate the other party lower than they rate illegal immigrants with the word illegal in the title. You know, Republicans rate Democrats lower than they rate atheists. Democrats rate Republicans lower than they rate Christian fundamentalists. I mean, we hate each other at, at this point in time. And the the problem that this creates, I think, is, you know, something that was part of our conversation a little bit earlier on, and that is this desire to see the world the way that we want to see it. Um, you know, when you really hate somebody, you don't want any good to come to them. You'll believe anything bad about them, right? And that's where we are these days. You know, Republicans don't root for the economy to do well when uh, Barack Obama was president. And, you know, you can imagine there was a certain, I think, quiet sadness among Democrats when the most recent jobs report came out and it showed that we have the lowest unemployment rate since 1969. Hey, you know, we're all Americans. We're supposed to be on the same team. You know, a victory for the Republicans uh, is also, in this case, a victory for the country. And yet we don't see it that way anymore. You know, we'd rather terrible things happen to the country when the other side is in charge. And... You know, this is where sports and, and politics diverge. I'm a huge sports fan and I root for the Yankees to lose every game. <laughs> but with that in mind, you know, there's no damage to the country if the Yankees win or if the Yankees lose. But if I'm rooting against the Republicans, I'm rooting against the country, you know, on one level or another. I'm rooting for high unemployment. I'm rooting for, you know, these terrible things. And this is the real problem that we face in American politics these days. We're not all pulling on the same rope any longer. And, you know, this is potentially a really serious concern. Let's fit in one more break here. And when we come back in our last few minutes, how President Trump fits into all of this and what the trends show about where politics is headed. And we want to hear from you on this topic. Have you seen a cultural divide open up over the last few years? Have you maybe been on both sides of it? Have you noticed that your neighborhood or your group of friends has gotten more homogenous? We want to hear your story. So you can email us, innovationhub at wgbh.org. The other thing you can do is just go to innovationhub.org. You can click on About, and then we've got all the different ways that you can contact us. From WGBH Radio and PRI, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Back in a minute. You say goodbye, and I say hello. Hello, hello. I don't know why you say goodbye. I 
1999, a guy who kind of, sort of, was interested in the presidency appeared on Meet the Press with host Tim Russert. He wanted to run as a nominee of the Reform Party, though a couple years later he ended up joining the Democratic Party and donating money to Democrats. So it's perhaps not surprising that in 1999, when this politically engaged fellow was asked about the divisive topic of abortion, he laid out a decidedly Democratic position to Tim Russert. Would President Trump ban partial birth abortion? Well, look, I'm, I'm very pro-choice. I hate the concept of abortion. I hate it. I hate everything it stands for. I cringe when I listen to people debating the subject. But you still, I just believe in choice. And again, it may be a little bit of a New York background because there is some different attitude in different parts of the country. And, you know, I was raised in New York and grew up and work and everything else in New York City. But I am strongly for choice, and yet I hate the concept of abortion. And when Russert pressed Donald Trump on late-term abortions, Trump doubled down. But you would not ban it? No. Or ban partial birth abortion? No, I would. I would. I am... I am pro-choice in every respect and as far as it goes, but I just hate it. And Trump's position made sense. It was in line with Democrats, as were many of his other beliefs. He has expressed over the years a lot more skepticism of free trade than most Republicans. Democrats have traditionally been the people who stood with unions in questioning how much trade and how much low-priced stuff flowing into the country was good for workers. Trump has also expressed more opposition to immigration than traditional Republicans who have often supported the businesses that rely on immigrant labor. But, says Mark Hetherington, a professor of political science at the University of North Carolina, when Trump joined the Republican Party in 2009, eight years after he joined the Democratic Party, the issue was not issues. You know, this notion that people are driven by policy and not team is just laughable. And, uh, you know, Donald Trump's presidency is probably the best example of it ever. Liliana Mason, a professor of government and politics at the University of Maryland, argues that though both sides are prone to understand the world through team dynamics, Republicans may be even more inclined in that direction. Republicans are sort of already set to have, with a dangerous worldview, and with a really socially homogeneous party, which promotes intentions for purity and consistency, there are more motivations on the Republican side than on the Democratic side currently toward that type of thinking that allows that type of thinking to sort of flourish. So where does that leave the country? Will we increasingly pull apart into two nations that are nominally one but really aren't? Mark Hetherington says you have to start with this. Donald Trump is a man of our time a time in which issues have become almost completely subsumed by identity. So you think about the things that used to make people Republicans, in, and that is, you know, how big they think the government ought to be, how free trade ought to be, things along those lines. But people don't care about those things, you know, by and large. What people, you know, uh, really care about are the things that Trump was offering up, you know, which was his position on immigration, his position denigrating African-Americans. You know, he made clear his particulars on these social, racial, ethnic issues. And that's what attracted, you know, his support in the primaries. But to get to your, your point about, you know, where it leaves us, you know, there are some traditional Republicans out there who really do care about the size of government and low taxes and, you know, things along those lines. What, what party? What party are they in? I mean, who do they vote for? Well, and, and you know, this is where I'm going with this. Um, because of this teamsmanship, 
you know, we have the biggest budget deficits, you know, that we've ever had, you know, right now. Uh, you know, more spending on things like infrastructure, things that are completely antithetical to the old time Republican ideology. All right. So, you know, that should mean a lot of Republicans shouldn't approve of the job Donald Trump's doing. But he's not a Democrat. And that's all that matters in this day and age. Um, you know, Republicans, of course, overwhelmingly voted for Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton, despite the fact that, you know, Clinton was better on many of these economic issues than Trump was for um, uh, for these traditional Republicans. But it's all about the team. So, you know, keep this in mind, you know, back in the 1970s, the average difference between approval ratings of presidents between Republicans and Democrats was about 35 points. So, you know, when Jimmy Carter was president, Democrats liked Jimmy Carter um, by about 35 points more than uh, uh, Republicans did. With Trump, it's 80 percentage points. Um, you know, wow. it's as though... It's like two different planets. It's two different planets. And, you know, this has been building over time, you know, the the... Uh, and it's gotten, you know, deeper. But again, you know, keep in mind, you know, these presidents are doing, you know, the same job. It's just that they're, um, you know, doing it in ways that um, are so much more connected to teams, um, you know, than they used to be. Right. Liliana, I, I'm telling you, people are listening. Or they're like driving in the car and they're like, maybe some people are driven by culture, but I vote on like abortion issues or I vote on climate change issues or I've like I am a tax person or I vote on guns like I, I don't know about these other people but I know what I believe and like no cultural war is gonna like dissuade me from like really understanding policy what do you think yeah every single person <laughs> thinks that um that's why I'm addressing all those people because I guess it's everybody <laughs> yeah, everyone thinks that. They think, all right, fine, maybe there's some biased people out there, but it's not definitely me. not nope. me. I'm a very rational thinker. I make my own decisions, and I and I care about everything that the government is doing. Because um, certainly some people care, right? They, they There are, to some extent, there are actual things that we think the government should be doing. And honestly, part of the reason I started doing this research was that I was concerned that, you know, one of the outcomes of this of this sort of teamsmanship is that there is no accountability in the government if we all are completely loyal partisans all the time, right? We can't vote someone out if they misbehave, uh, if we are always just going to, you know, click the same button in the voting booth every single time. So it's not it's not healthy for the government to be behaving this way. And I do think that there there can be legitimate concern um, about you know what is actually happening in our government and to our government. But, you know, at the, at the same time, one of the things that we know about um, sort of human, you know, thought is that the when we have political bias in our, in our minds, um, we tend to actually, the people who know the most about politics are the most biased. And so the people who are paying the most attention uh, actually have more information in their brains in order to counter-argue something they don't want to hear. And so it's not that the, the problem lies with all of these sort of ignorant, undecided people. Um, the problem actually lies with the people who are the most politically sophisticated and understand the most. And one, one thing I would, just, I would also add is that um, this is something that psychologists call implicit bias. Uh, it's something that happens while you're not thinking about it, right? It's sort of automatic and you're you're not aware that it's happening. And the only way to make it stop, to sort of fix it in your own mind, is for you to acknowledge that it is happening 
and then try to make it go away, right? You have to actively acknowledge it and then work on slowing down your automatic responses that are going to be immediately biased to, to anything partisan that you see. So in fact, you know, the, these people who, who think that they're unbiased, um, you know, maybe could take a, a, a quick look and think like, are there automatic things that I always do when I think about the other side? And can I slow those down? When you look ahead, Mark writes about, you know, the house divided itself against itself cannot stand. Uh, you talk about kids and sort of the future for people who are young right now. What do you see, given the trends you've looked at? Uh, I So my, my most optimistic take on everything that's happening now is that what we have is, um, you know, a, a two parties divided largely by these essential social identities like race and religion. And, uh, and we, but we also have our two party, we have one entire party that's really focusing on, you know, pushing not just civil rights, but, but all kinds of social progress um, and kind of addressing the, the, the history, the legacy of racial violence and intolerance that, we, that America has never really totally dealt with. Um, and so the most optimistic view is this is we are finally as a country facing the 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 sort of racial story that we've been living through this entire time. And if we were ever to do that, it would feel really chaotic. There would be a huge uh, pushback. Right. There would be a lot of fighting and arguing and people saying really unpopular things. Um, and that's what's happening right now. Mm-hmm. So so the most optimistic vision of this is that we are going through the very uncomfortable process of handling our, our sort of legacy of, of racism, largely, um, and that the two parties are the ones who have to battle it out. Mark, let me ask you the same question. What do you see going forward? Well, I'm not very optimistic in the short run. We have this sort of um, you know racial, ethnic, cultural divide, and what we know from 500 years of human history is that this is really difficult to displace from being the dividing line between the parties. What has to happen, in my view, for things to change is for us, you know, to be by party divided by different things. You know, back, you know, when we were divided about, you know, something that was low heat, like how big the government ought to be, you know, we had a lot of cooperation across party lines. And it seems to me that, you know, these are the golden years of uh, American uh, politics and American life in many uh, respects. But of course, those conflicts have now been replaced by race and culture and ethnicity and, you know, all of these, you know, different types of hot button things. You know, if the history, if history is any guide, will somehow emerge from this. Um, Something will happen. Um, But usually what happens is something catastrophic, some sort of cataclysm, um, you know, like a Great Depression um, or a civil war or um, a near Great Depression as in the 1890s. And, you know, that has this, you know, uh, effect of reordering the parties around, you know, some other issue, something new, you know, and it, and we break out of, you know, the, the old type of politics. Um, what I think, you know, it's going to require is for one side to get a relatively large advantage. Um, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about, the, you know, the Yankees and the Red Sox uh, over the course of this. You know, as a big Red Sox fan, I don't care as much when, you know, the the teams are not close in the standings. You know, I start mm-hmm. to care a lot more um, when the teams are competing for the pennant. And, you know, this is what we have right now. We have this politics that's balanced on a knife's edge 
about, you know, the most hot button political issues that you could possibly choose, where one side can definitely win the majority in the House and Senate and the presidency in any given election. So nobody can show any weakness. You know, the teamsmanship is at its maximum. So we need to, you know, find a place in in uh, in our politics where one side moves out ahead, I think, a little bit of the other side. Um, the incentives then change for the parties to take the types of positions on issues that they're taking now. Um, and then maybe we end up with a with a better future. Mark Hetherington is a professor of political science at the University of North Carolina. He's also the co-author of Prius or Pickup, How the Answers to Four Simple Questions Explain America's Great Divide. And Liliana Mason is an assistant professor of government and politics at the University of Maryland, College Park. She's also the author of Uncivil Agreement, How Politics Became Our Identity. Thanks very much to both of you. Thanks for everything. Thanks so much for having me. We've got more about the stories and statistics that we talked about during this show, from the tale of the boys at Robbers Cave State Park in Oklahoma to the hard numbers on how people feel about living near or marrying those from a different political party. And let us know how the country's intensifying political polarization has changed your life. You can email us, innovationhub at wgbh.org. You can also tweet at us. We're at iHubRadio. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Asil Kibbe, and engineer Doug Sugars. We also had production help from Nadia Lewis. From WGBH Radio and PRI, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.